Hi, welcome to Ben Pepari by Asset Management's Future Makers Podcasts. My name is Christopher McMullen, and today I will be speaking with Mark Lewis, their Chief Sustainability Strategist, on his white paper, Green Hydrogen and Carbon Pricing. Hi, Mark. So how are you this morning? Yeah, good morning, Chris. Uh, uh, feeling good and uh, very, uh, very good to be with you. It's uh, Great to have you with us. So um, basically, Mark, you have your, your new paper that's coming out on green hydrogen. Um, before we, we get into it, if you could explain a little bit um, what the EU ETSs are, what is the EUAs, and, and the carbon pricing aspect sure. of your... Sure, absolutely. Uh, yes, well, the paper, as you say, is is really all about um, green hydrogen and carbon pricing and linking the two. So if we start with carbon pricing and the European Emissions Trading System, which is what EU ETS stands for, it's a cap and trade scheme uh, for carbon emissions. So what it means is you put a cap on the level of emissions uh, for the sectors and industries that are covered by the scheme. And that cap on emissions declines over time because the whole purpose is to reduce emissions over time. So the supply of allowances, which is um, calculated um, and drawn up by the European Union, that's to say the European Commission in conjunction with member state governments and the European Parliament, um, uh, informs the market ahead of time what the cap will be every year uh, going forward under a given policy target. And then... On the other side of the coin, the demand is set by the level of emissions. And the level of emissions is a function of the uh, carbon intensity of the industries that are covered by the EU ETS and of economic growth. Now, at the moment, the EU ETS covers about 50% of all emissions in the European Union because it covers the most carbon intensive industrial sectors. That is to say, power generation, um, uh, steel manufacturing, cement manufacturing, oil refineries, pulp and paper, and a number of other smaller sectors and subsectors. And uh, on the transport side at the moment, it only covers aviation intra-European flights. So you cover 50% of emissions, you uh, set a cap on them, and, and the cap declines over time. And that gives um, European industry an incentive to reduce its emissions over time, because the higher your level of emissions, then the greater your obligation to surrender allowances. You have to surrender all of the entities that are covered by this scheme, and there's uh, 11 to 12,000 industrial installations that are covered by this scheme. Every installation that is covered has to surrender one, one allowance, a European allowance, which is a, a, essentially a permit to emit. Um, CO2, uh, at the end of the year, you uh, have independent verification of the number of uh, tons of CO2 that you have emitted, and you have to submit an EUA, a European Carbon Allowance, against every ton of CO2 that you have, you have emitted. So that's really the basics of this market. Okay. And so this is basically what we would call a policy-driven market? Is that correct? It's Absolutely a policy-driven market. It's a market that has been designed to solve a, or to achieve a public policy objective. And the public policy objective is to reduce CO2 emissions. And very importantly now, we have reached a key stage in the development of this market because the European Union is in the process of uh, tightening the uh, carbon emissions allowed in this scheme and in the EU more generally. So two very important policy uh, 
um, proposals are currently going through. Number one, the EU is in the process of legislating for net zero emissions in the EU by 2050. Um, in other words, they're putting in place a legally binding target to make the European Union carbon neutral by 2050. By definition, that means that emissions within the EU ETS will have to fall to zero by uh, 2050. And as an interim measure to achieving net zero by 2050, policymakers, the European Commission, have also proposed two weeks ago, so this is very recent news, they have proposed that the EU's target for emissions reductions by 2030 be increased uh, from the current uh, target of a 40% reduction versus 1990 levels to a 55% reduction by uh, versus uh, 1990 levels. And this will require, in turn, a significant tightening of the cap in the EU ETS uh, by 2030. So um, we have a long-term target, which is uh, carbon neutrality by 2050. And in all likelihood, once we've gone through the process of uh, the, the member states reacting to the Commission's proposal and the Parliament reacting, we will also have a tougher interim target of a 55% reduction. So policy drives everything in this market. That's the fundamental point. Okay. For, for the auditors that um, don't necessarily um, have a dictionary for, for these financial terms, could maybe you could, in, in a nutshell, um, explain a little bit the difference between a commodity market and a policy market. And then we can go on to discussing uh, the essence of your paper, which is articulates around green hydrogen. Sure. Well, um, the simple difference is this. Um, I, I would phrase it slightly differently. I would say, phrase it because EUAs are a commodity, right? Um, CO2 is a tradable commodity now in exactly the same way that oil and copper are tradable commodities. The difference is this. Um, really, you, you should distinguish, I suppose, between a naturally occurring commodity market, such as oil and copper and gold and all of the commodity markets we're, we're familiar with, and a policy-driven commodity market, which is what the EU ETS is. Now, the fundamental difference is this. In a naturally occurring commodity market, like oil or copper or, or, or any of those uh, natural commodities, um, the price is set by the interaction of supply and demand in the prompt, in the here and now. Um, you know, th th there is a forward curve for commodities. You can, you can trade commodities today, tomorrow, next week, uh, next year, five years, you, five years forward, you know. But price formation in a naturally occurring commodity market is based on the supply and demand to, uh, balance today and then the market's perception of how that supply-demand balance will evolve over time. So the price for oil in 2025, and you could trade oil for 2025 delivery now if you want, there's a price in the market for it, but it will be a function of the market's perception of how today's supply-demand balance will evolve over time. Um, and, and therefore, price formation is from the today, uh, it's an extrapolation of today into tomorrow based on uh, market perceptions of how that supply-demand balance will evolve, and the cost of storage, and the required uh, rate of return for people to um, to arbitrage between today and tomorrow. Now, in a policy-driven market, from a theoretical point of view, the way the price formation works should, in fact, be the other way around. In other words, today's price 
should in theory be a function of the price in the future that is required to deliver the policy objective. So let's think about that in a little bit more detail with regard to what I was just saying a moment ago about the ultimate end game here. The end game for the EU ETS is to help Europe deliver net zero emissions by 2050. So what the market knows, just from that piece of information, the market knows that at some point between now and 2050, the carbon price has to hit the level that delivers that policy objective. Now, nobody knows today what price that is. You can't say for sure what that price is going to be, and you can't say for sure when the market price will hit that level. But what you can do is um, think about what are the what are the likely drivers? What, what has to happen in order for um, the carbon price to reach the level where the problem is solved, where we get to net zero? And that's really what my paper is all about with regard to green hydrogen. And this leads into that discussion. So just to tee that up for you, Chris, I would say this, that we know from the European Union's green hydrogen strategy paper that was published in July of this year, that the, e the European Commission thinks that it is impossible to deliver net zero by 2050 without green hydrogen being a big part of the solution. And therefore, the market today, putting those two factors together, can say to itself, well, we need the carbon price at some point to get to the level where green hydrogen becomes a significant part of the energy system within Europe. And then you can make assumptions about what the price should be in the future for that to happen and what that implies for the price today. And that's really what I've done in my report. Okay. Um, but what is green hydrogen? It sounds sure. nice, but what exactly is it? Sure. So um, hydrogen, let's start with hydrogen, first of all. Hydrogen is the most abundant uh, naturally occurring element in the universe, but it doesn't occur in isolation. Um, in it, it, in, in, in well, it's the most naturally abundant uh, occurring element, in, certainly in the Earth's in the Earth's um, atmosphere and on 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 the Earth. Um, but it doesn't occur in isolation in nature. So you either have to uh, break down, deconstruct um, uh, combined elements such as water, which is a um, obviously a compound of of hydrogen and oxygen or you have to synthetically create hydrogen in, in other ways. Now, most of the hydrogen that is produced globally today, in fact, nearly all of it, is what we call gray hydrogen. That is to say, hydrogen that is produced using fossil fuels to produce it. And the most widespread um, method used to, to make green hydrogen is a method called uh, steam methane reforming. And it's very intensive as its name would imply, in the use of natural gas. And um, therefore, when you produce grey hydrogen, you, you also produce a lot of CO2 emissions. For every kilogram of grey hydrogen that is produced under the uh, steam methane reforming process, you emit nine kilograms of CO2. Um, and so if we're really going to decarbonize the world, and in the European context, if we're going to get to net zero by 2050, we need to find an alternative to grey hydrogen. Uh, grey hydrogen in Europe today is responsible for about 80 to 90 million tonnes of CO2 per year. That is equivalent to about 6% of all the emissions in the EU ETS. So we have to decarbonise 
uh, hydrogen um, production first. That's the first step. Now, if you're going to decarbonize uh, hydrogen uh, production, you want to make it clean and emissions-free, and that's where green hydrogen comes in. It's green because it doesn't emit any CO2. So how do you make it? You make it via the electrolysis process, um, breaking down uh, water into its constituent elements of oxygen and hydrogen. And the way you, you the way you power the electrolysis process, the electricity you use um, is from renewable energy sources, so from wind or from solar. And therefore, there are no emissions in the electricity from producing the electricity, which then powers the electrolyzer to um, produce the hydrogen. So that's why it's called green hydrogen. And um, the first goal, really, in the uh, long-term plan uh, to net zero emissions by 2050 is to make uh, green hydrogen competitive with grey hydrogen as an industrial feedstock. And then the longer-term goal is to ensure that green hydrogen can compete head-to-head with, directly with uh, natural gas and petroleum products as an energy source itself. So the first step is to compete with grey hydrogen. The second step beyond 2030 is to compete directly with natural gas and petroleum products in in applications such as transportation, heating, space heating, and um, power generation itself. We will need storage capability um, for an energy system or an electricity system that's based more and more on renewable energy, and hydrogen can provide uh, a, a very useful storage solution, particularly on the longer term durations, the, the seasonal storage we need between summer and winter. So in a nutshell, that's what green hydrogen is all about. Okay, great. Um, now in your paper, you in the, in the intro of your paper, you discussed your three promises. And, and one of the, the first one um, is with regards to Europe, uh, Europe's target, the EU's target of achieving a net zero emissions by 2050. That right. is soon to be enshrined in, in EU law. Um, right. What is in place uh, for, these, for the EU ETSs to achieve this policy uh, objective as an end right. game? Well, I think the way we think about this is as follows. Um, we mentioned earlier, we've, t- we've touched on this already, but essentially, this, the EU ETS is a policy-driven market. And as I said, we now have an end game. The EU wants to decarbonize um, its energy system and indeed its entire economy, because energy is about 70% of greenhouse gas emissions, between 70 and 80%, and the rest is on things like um, agriculture and land use change, which are not included uh, in the EU ETS. Um, so we, uh, it, it, the EU is in the process of um, legislating for net zero, as I said. It's, it's likely that by the end of this year already, we will have um, the target of net zero emissions by 2050 in European law. It will be a legally binding target probably by the end of this year, but certainly by no later than the end of Q1 uh, next year. Now, um, so that's that's the first thing. We want to achieve net zero emissions by 2050. The second point, which I've also uh, referenced already, is that to get to net zero, green hydrogen has to play a bigger role. Today, hydrogen, but it's all gray hydrogen, only accounts for about 2% of all the energy Uh, used in the European Union. And if we're going to get to net zero emissions by 2050, the European Commission estimates that green hydrogen will have to account for 
about 15% of, of uh, energy use in the EU. Um, and so uh, that's the second premise, that green hydrogen has to be a big part of the solution. And then the third premise is you can't get to a uh, situation where green hydrogen is, uh, um, uh, is commercially viable and competitive with natural gas and petroleum um, as an energy source until you've made it uh, commercially viable as a feedstock. In, in other words, um, this is a sequential process. It's going to be cheaper in the first instance for green hydrogen to compete directly with gray hydrogen as an industrial feedstock than it is for uh, green hydrogen to be competitive directly as an energy source with um, natural gas and, uh, and petroleum. So you have to do this sequentially. That's the third point. Um, we need to make uh, green hydrogen commercially competitive with grey hydrogen by 2030. If you don't do it by 2030, you're not going to be on track to uh, net zero. So for me, that gives us a clear vision for the future of the EU ETS in the sense that we should now be looking at the carbon price required to make green hydrogen competitive with grey hydrogen by 2030. And we should be thinking about the price implications today that flow from that target. And as of 2050, how do you see the, the role of green hydrogen in, in our society today with regards maybe to vehicles uh, for industrial, as industrial feedstock, et cetera? Right. What, what, what percentage would you see it if you can see that today? Um, well, well, as I said, the, the, the European Commission says it needs to be at least 15% of total energy consumed in the uh, EU by 2050, but it could be higher, it could be lower. A lot will depend on, in my view, a lot will depend on how successful we are in improving battery technology. Because, um, you know, the, the reason there is a need for green hydrogen is that as of today, there are certain applications, energy applications, that do not seem to be very easily amenable to electrification where you need large amounts of electricity storage. And I mentioned one application, which is um, you know, seasonal storage between summer and winter. We don't yet have batteries that can deliver that kind of uh, storage. Uh, it may be that the battery technology improves very significantly between now and 2050. I'm certain it will, and it will get a lot cheaper as well. But it may be that hydrogen is still a more useful application. The other thing I would say is that as the electricity system, what you have to realize is that the huge transformation we're talking about here, about Europe's energy system by 2050, um, electricity is simply going to be a bigger part of all of our lives. We're going to be using it for more and more applications. Everybody's familiar now with the arguments around electric vehicles. I think the speed with which electric vehicles are going to be adopted will um, surprise everybody. And certainly already today, the debate is far more advanced than it was even a year ago, never mind five years ago. So that's seeping into um, the general consciousness that electrification is going to be a big part of this story using renewable energy. But um, as of today, there will be certain certain um, applications that cannot be so easily uh, electrified with renewable energy. Um, for example, uh, in terms of road transportation, heavy duty trucks, um, you know, the battery technology there is not 
is certainly not mature enough today to imagine it could be commercially viable. By 2050, that might change. But it will depend also, Chris, obviously, these are all moving uh, moving variables, dynamic variables. It will depend on how quickly we can bring the cost of green hydrogen itself down. Producing green hydrogen today is very expensive. It costs anywhere between five and six euros uh, per kilogram to produce green hydrogen, whereas for grey hydrogen, it only costs about one and a half euros uh, per kilogram. So green hydrogen is anywhere between uh, three to four times more expensive than gray hydrogen today. So my argument is we need to scale up green hydrogen in exactly the same way that we scaled up renewable energy capacity over the last decade. And the way we did that was not by means of the carbon price. It wasn't the carbon price that delivered an 80% reduction in uh, solar energy costs. It wasn't the carbon price that delivered you know, a 60%, 70% reduction in offshore wind costs. But the fact that those technologies are now uh, costing what they, what they cost today means that the carbon price of already of 25 to 30 euros a ton, which is where it's trading, is high enough to incentivize solar and wind to be built ahead of coal and uh, natural gas. In exactly the same way, I think that green hydrogen, you need to scale it up. And the way you scale it up is by smart public policy. That means, you know, in some cases, we're going to need some public uh, policy um, subsidies. We're going to need smart rules about uh, preferring the use of green hydrogen in, in some applications in the same way, for example, that uh, when we were scaling up offshore wind and solar, we gave uh, preferential treatment to the use of uh, solar and, um, and and wind power on the grid. We gave them preferential grid access. You know, doing those kinds of smart things is what's required to attract the capital. And once capital starts to flow into the investment for producing uh, green hydrogen, the cost will start to fall because you will get this phenomenon of economies of scale and the related phenomenon of uh, learning by doing and, and improved technology over time. And then you get what I call this virtuous feedback loop between public policy and the technology uh, response, which means that once you reach a certain scale, um, public policy makers can set more ambitious targets with, with lower levels of subsidy and the capital will still flow because the, the market will have started to develop. That's exactly how we've done it with renewable energy. So we know how to do this now. I think 15 years ago, at the beginning of the energy transition in the power sector in Europe, people were very skeptical about whether or not renewable energy could ever be economically competitive. And here we are today. We've now, in the last three weeks, seen the cheapest ever solar power deal anywhere in the world signed in Europe, in Portugal. 11 euros a megawatt hour for the production of solar electricity. It's remarkable. 10 years ago, uh, solar electricity in Germany was getting a, a subsidy of over 300 euros per megawatt hour. You can now produce it in Portugal for 11 euros uh, a megawatt hour, and you can still make a profit on it. How about that? So uh, that's what this is all about. But you, you're going to need a carbon price to deliver uh, once once green hydrogen is within range, let's put it that way, once green hydrogen is, is within range of grey hydrogen from a cost point of view, then a carbon price at, a, at an acceptable level will be able to deliver that switch between green hydrogen and grey hydrogen 
as an industrial feedstock. And, um, and then subsequently, as the cost of green hydrogen continues to fall beyond 2030, um, you will find that the carbon price can also deliver uh, green hydrogen uh, being more competitive than, uh, than gas and petrol, petroleum products uh, for direct energy uh, application. It's very interesting, Mark. Um, I, I uh, want to thank you for the time you spent with us explaining this to us. Um, I think it gives a lot. It's very thought-provoking, um, and it, it has a, a an optimistic direction to it, a very future-maker yes. yes. point of view. Um, well, can I just I, say, Chris, in response to that, I mean, yes. one of the most interesting things for me, uh, and I've been following this debate over energy and climate change, the interaction between those two fields for 15 years now, that's been my day job to, 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 to plow that furrow, <laughs> the overlap yeah. between um, energy and climate change. And I get more optimistic uh, the longer I'm in this because we're seeing now um, the solutions, uh, renewable energy, and hopefully over the next decade, I am sure green hydrogen as well, uh, starting to arrive at scale and uh, in a competitive economically, and that's what we need. And carbon pricing can really help us get there more quickly. That's the point. And it is very reassuring as well to see the the world of finance, the power of the, the leverage that finance can bring to us to this, um, the involvement that that is taking place. Um, Absolutely. That's also, that's also very, very good to know. Well, you know, markets are very rational and they they uh, they look at things based on um, the economic incentives and uh, carbon pricing uh, redistributes the economic incentives between uh, towards less carbon intensive solutions away from more carbon intensive uh, solutions. So that's the whole point of carbon pricing. Fantastic. So we're on track for the 2050 net Zero. I think with a fair wind, we will be. Yes, I, I think it can. Let's put it this way. I think it can be done. I think it can be done. And I would not have said that um, probably even three years ago, never mind 10 years ago. Um, so uh, the long, as I said, the longer I'm in this, the more optimistic I get. Cheers. Thanks Thank a you, lot, Mark, for your time. Cheers. Um, and until we, we speak again. Absolutely. Um, Thanks a lot. Care. Okay, Thanks. bye-bye. Bye-bye. This podcast presentation includes a discussion on current market events and is not intended as investment advice or an offer of products or services by BNP Paiba Asset Management. Please keep in mind that the information and analysis in this presentation is only current as of the publication date. The securities mentioned are for information purposes only and should not be considered as an investment recommendation.